Is that like is that like fecal shedding? Like what? Uh, it's an mRNA shedding, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Now we're, the guy. A, now we're gonna get flagged as a COVID podcast and be banned from every platform. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 338 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined today by Fosma Mood, and uh, coming to you from St. Martin, Seth Miller. Hello, hello. hello. How, is it, how is it from your first international trip in a year plus? There were parts of it that I don't miss at all, like chaos at the gate while everybody tries to figure out documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, we put, I mean, we were delayed anyways, but we pushed back even after we thought we were going to because it took them so long to check everybody's documents, so... In that context, I sort of understand airlines and other people pushing for find, trying to wait, find a way to make it all digital. Yeah. Um, that said, like, it is digital in St. Martin. You have a QR code. If you scan it, it says yes or no. You'd think they would be able to use that, but they want they literally checked everything by hand. And even when we had, you know, and Mark Doc's okay, essentially. And then at boarding, even if you had the Doc's okay, sort of looked at some of it again. So well, it was kind of a mess. Well, well, for our Patreon subscribers, we're going to talk about St. Martin. Uh, in the bonus episode in depth, right? Um, well, then I won't talk anymore. Yeah, I think I was, that's why I cut you off. So, okay. yeah, they, they, they get a teaser, all right, on the regular mm. show. That's how this works. Look okay? at this, getting professional about some of this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how you doing, Foz? Not too bad. Yeah? Just is, it, well. is, is the weather better in the Northeast? It is humid as crap, but it's not too hot. Yeah, it's humid here, too. It's it's 68, but it feels like a sun outside. So. I'm um, in the Caribbean. Of course, it's humid. Yeah, exactly. So we're just all we're all just you know working on our skin. Um, Lufty wants in on the uh, on the Alitalia for a joint venture. What? What is happening? Well, so Lufthansa was always always this a long time, but always rumored as a potential bidder for the old Alitalia while it was going out of business. Mm-hmm. Right? We've talked about that a little bit over the years. I think. Um, also, it's, we've been talking about this for years, and Alitalia still hasn't figured its shit out. But whatever. Um, they still haven't died yet completely either. So well, there there's now a plan. With some money set aside, and they're just, they have to become a new airline. They can't keep the Alitalia name even hmm. um, to in order for it to be like truly a legal bankruptcy and recapitalization or something. There's, there's some, and there's the European Council or whatever is debating how much money they really should, the government should really be allowed to put into it. And there's some other interesting bits. But this particular topic I want to talk about. What was interesting is basically Lufthansa has approached them, and Lufthansa again had always sort of been bidding for some of the assets. Has approached the new Alitalia and said, "Hey." We've got like a joint venture across the Atlantic and we'll make you a partner in it and use your, you know, you can use all of our ticketing infrastructure and all of this other stuff that we already have. And you can even join our, you know, purchasing contracts and stuff. <laughs> you want in? And separately, like the, the Sky Team joint venture that they're already a part of, which actually threw them out. You may recall when as Virgin Atlantic uh, joined the venture, they kicked Alitalia out. And so it's super weird. And, th- and those guys are like, yeah, we'll let you back in too. I mean, as a second tier partner, though, not as a primary partner. And so it's super interesting to figure out, like, you know, just, you know, straight up looking at the numbers, one would argue that it's better to join the Lufthansa Group uh, JV based on how that interaction would happen. But you know, obviously, there's a lot more to it than just ticketing contracts. I didn't I didn't realize airline, you know, joint ventures were kind of like high school. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we'll let you, we'll, you can hang you out with us. us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no, you go sit with your own friends. <laughs> and on Mondays, um, we fly back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like Mean Girls, real game. Um so if they go back to SkyTeam, you're saying they wouldn't have full privileges of SkyTeam, whereas like be a full partner of SkyTeam? Is that I, how it's how it is? It's the joint venture, not the alliance. So that's okay. an important distinction. 
Um, so with Alitalia, there with the Sky Team, but it's called the Sky Team Joint Ventures. Or Blue Sky, I think, is the name of that one. And the Star Alliance one is A plus plus. Um, it's uh, or Blue Sky's the one world one. I forget, but um, it's basically. Air France, KLM, and Delta, and then Virgin Atlantic joined because of the Delta ownership, and it's not a Sky Team partner. Mm-hmm. And the gist of it is like there's pooling of revenue and pooling of capacity and joint setting of fare, right? So in theory, all of the alliance members charge the same price on the same flights, all operating under the same or on the same operating metal, regardless of whose code is on it. And mm-hmm. they actually manage that, if I remember correctly, like one airline is just responsible for setting all the fares, or one on each side of the Atlantic, right? Yep. Does that sound familiar? Um, yep. And so the, the gist of it is that basically they'd let, uh, there, there wouldn't be a full partner in terms of the pooling of revenue and capacity. They'd get a, like a different allocation or allotment um, based on how they sort of join and fly. Gotcha. I mean, it seems like it's more intriguing to go with the Lufthansa partnership. Well, and so if you go with the Lufthansa partnership, like, do you stay in Sky Team? Ed, that's weird. Like, that would be weird, right? Yeah. What do you think, Fuzz? Do they do they come to the Star Alliance? I'm trying to think if there's ever been a situation where an airline's been, in essence, partnered with two different in two different uh, associations. In essence, I mean, I mean, my opinion on Sky Team is always those were the kids that were picked last. So it is like high school. I saying, and that sort of fits for Alitalia, but yeah. <laughs> right. It was those were the ones that were left at the end of the day, at the end of the night when uh, everyone partnered up. Um, you know, at the same point, I, I do want. I'm trying to remember, like Latam forced land to shift or Tam to shift. I forget which Tam. Right, Tam, Tam left Star Alliance and went to One World. Yep. Um, and so it was a very brief overlap, but not really. Like I, I don't think there's really good examples of being in one JV. Well. JVs are weird, though. I feel like maybe something in Asia where you're in one JV, you've got a JV with one partner, but a alliance in another. Yeah. Uh, but like ANA and Qantas, I think have a JV, maybe mm. something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with Alaska, right? I think they've got a couple of JVs where, or it's, I guess they're not joint countries, so they're just partnerships. Yeah. No, no. Qantas was Japan Airlines, so that would have been a one world alliance. Mm-hmm. Never mind. I mean, what's like, what benefits does Alitalia really have staying in Sky Team? Arguably, the alliances are better for these smaller airlines because they provide that connectivity and feed that the small airlines can't develop on their own, as opposed to a big airline like, you know, uh, one of the big five, big 10 globally that's like, no, we're, we're fine on our own, right? That's why Delta's not trying to bring Virgin Atlantic into an alliance, why it's, you know, the bigger airlines kind of don't care. Like, no, we, we're actually giving them our resources. We don't need them as much. And are happy with JVs. But all, I mean, I think in the let's look at it from a historical perspective. I don't think Sky Team has done much for Alitalia, right? So they, I can't imagine they have a lot of vested interest. I mean, without Sky Team and without the Transatlantic Joint Venture, would Alitalia have collapsed more often, more earlier? But the JV in the grander scale is somewhat relatively new with the uh, yeah. Alitalia, right? They were excluded for the longest time. So you think it just hasn't been a huge benefit for them to be part of Sky Team? Yeah, in the way that they've participated. I mean, if I'm all Italian, I'm looking at how Air France or KLM are getting treated or even Virgin Atlantic. Yeah. I, I would be like this. I, there's got to be something better for me. And I mean, do, do you think this like, do you think this partnership with Lufthansa, Seth, could lead to a Star Alliance entry for them or invite for them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it would be very weird for them to be in a joint venture across alliances like that. But I mean, let's say, let's say they left Sky Team and did this joint venture. Do you think... Yeah. Like, I, I, maybe they'd say independent. Um, yeah. 
No, I bet that they end up transferring to Starlines. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. They're, they're not they're not big enough or well known enough or have a network big enough like Emirates or one of those right that can kind of not well, be part of an, an alliance. Well, and also as they come across to whatever the new Alitalia is, there's just going to be fewer. It's only like fifty planes or something to start. It's because mm. of capitalization. That's the other thing is Lufthansa said it would stump some cash. What cash? I have no idea. I guess German government funding because that's where their money is coming from right now. Um, but only in the second year and only if certain conditions are met. Interesting. Or something like that. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but the Alitalia drama, she doth continue. She doth continue. I like it. It's like old English. Like, I mean, that Shakespeare play. Um, uh, United has some crazy orders coming in. Maybe. Supposedly, allegedly. A321, LRs, XLRs, NEOs. What would we know? Nothing. Nothing. So we just know it's an A321. Probably some airbus orders. Yeah. What was that? that Didn't they already order the XLR? They are holding orders for the XLRs already. There's And the, the MAX is also supposedly part of this. There may be some wide bodies in it. It's Bloomberg News broke the story late last week, early last, a couple, I don't know, some time ago now, um, basically saying United might order 100 Boeing aircraft. And then someone else followed up and was like, whoa, maybe it's a 200 aircraft order and includes Airbus. And then some, I was like, yeah, are we doing the Razor game thing? Is someone going to make it a 300 order? Mm-hmm. Um, four blades. Um but it, the rumor and story keeps growing. It has expanded to include uh, Airbus and Boeing now. Uh, still no word on I, I, the, the details and what it might actually be, though, remains very vague. Other than from what I've seen, it's more Boeing than Airbus. But, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? It's the, a number of the 737s and the 319s and 320, the 320s are over 20 years old now. Yeah. So. And depending on whether you're taking whitetails, which are, you know, Planes that have previously been built and the airline that wanted to buy them has gone out of business uh, or future deliveries at some point down the line. Um, there's certainly opportunities for deals to be had. I have to imagine the Boeing and Airbus salespeople are desperate for anything resembling good news. Just looking at the order books that keep coming out and deliveries, it's not, not a great time to be an aircraft manufacturer. It's it's so it's a mixed bag, right? Like there's and there's also the, the piece of like the 757s leaving, right? Because they're they're on the edge of life. I mean, yep. Most of them are from the mid 90s. And a lot of the seven sixty sevens too. At some point, yeah. No so retiring. I think the numbers were like something like there's twenty one seven fifty seven three hundreds and seventy two seven five twos, and there's thirty three of all those uh, mixed in storage still. So uh, the seven five two count should be down to like forty one. Really? Because they got rid of all the PS ones already. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm just trying to figure out like so the XLRs I guess fill in the seven fifty seven gap right because uh, they can do transatlantics and they can do some of the West coast of Hawaii flying, maybe even Denver. Yeah. That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, to Denver. I'm, I wonder about total capacity seat wise. Just, I mean, and part of that is obviously business decisions, but a United seven, five, two today is 16 up front and like what, 151 in the back or something like that. Yeah. I think right. it's 154 now that they took the, they took the half closet out. Yeah. yeah. So call it 170 passengers. Um, no, I, I'm thinking of the JetBlue A320 with the flatbeds, or 321, sorry, with the flatbeds in the mid configuration. And so their 16J configuration, the domestic mint layout is 16J and 144. Mm. So it's 10 fewer seats, but also a crap ton less fuel burn. Yeah. Oh. So you could, you could, you could figure out some kind of middle ground for how to, how to yeah. utilize the plane. And, yeah. Interesting. I mean, 
I, I guess it makes sense to me, like from the single aisle across the Atlantic piece, United wants to keep the ability to fly some of these thinner, I would call them thinner routes. Um, I'm thinking like Lisbon, they had Porto there for a while. Um, what else did they have that was 752s? Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh. Glasgow. All the, all the weird British stuff. Belfast. Yeah, all the weird British ones. And then they had like Dulles Smaller, and Chicago no. going to Ireland, right? Right. So. I, Summer seasonal even. So some of that. And Dulles, yeah. Barcelona. Dulles. Oh, yeah. 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 Smaller routes. I mean. Yeah. So those are all it, markets where the 321 XLR definitely and possibly even the LR would work fine. Yeah. I. What do you think then? Okay. So then we've talked about the Max. We've talked about the Max on here before. The Max 10. Yeah. And United, you, you kind of broke the story on United potentially using that as the PS plane or kind of using that as the PS plane across the country. Um, yeah. I still expect that's going to be the case just based on just what, how the, their order, how things go and how long it takes to order. Frames. I mean, cause a lot of this isn't going to happen. Like the, the, the 321s wouldn't come in. The XLRs wouldn't come till 2024. I think the XLR doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not going to get the earliest. They would get it. It'd be 2024. I guess the question I would take a step back. The question I would pose is, do we even need PS planes? Because they fly wide bodies. They're not doing PS planes now, right? JFK, they're doing with the high-density 7.6, but most of the newer flights are 7.52s. Or, or 7.7Ws that are going out full. Occasionally. They, there's generally one wide body a day, but, right? But, that, but the other three flights are 7.52s. And it, I'm going to say, in the free times, they had two wide bodies a day that went out full. I mean... Right. So, at least to San Francisco. Okay. Do, what do they need? Who the hell knows? We have no idea what demand's going to look like. Yeah, that's but the hard I, part. Is there's a lot of tea leaves that you got to read and hope for the best. Right, but one thing United has demonstrated repeatedly is they don't really mind walking, letting people walk away from the front cabin at Newark. Right, even before the PS planes were gone, at least half the flights, if not more, were done with the 16 seat planes, and they didn't give a shit. No, that, that people ended up in coach, even though they could have sold more J seats, yeah, or they went somewhere else. Yeah. Right. It, 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 yeah. I find it. It is interesting to me that at JFK they're so centered on the front cabin, but at Newark they don't. They really don't care. Well, I wonder if that changes now that like JetBlue's flying mid from Newark, which mm-hmm. wasn't the case when that policy existed. Well, I mean, I would argue not for all of it. You know, at the beginning when JetBlue started flying mid out of JFK, they had two wide bodies a day to SFO in LA. Since then, they've dropped it down to one. You mean JetBlue mm-hmm. out of Newark? Yeah, since JetBlue started doing out of yeah. Newark, United had two at the beginning. Now they're down to one a day. But still have way more total flights and total seats than JetBlue. Again, like a lot of this comes down to like part of it is the time and you want to have flights available for people when they want to fly. But some of it also comes down to like there's just nobody – not nobody. We're at 80 70%, 75% of you know 2019 numbers. But but there's no shortage of front cabin demand between Newark and LA or San Francisco. That's, that's what, if they put a 77W on it, it will go out full every time. That's what I find interesting, right, is that during all of this, the demand to Newark has stayed so high. Well, even, it hasn't, though. Remember, they had 9, 10, 11 flights a day. They're down yeah. to four. Yeah. It's just – it's interesting to me that, like, now people are, again, flying it and it's going out full. I mean, we've had a mutual friend who's flown the Newark – San Francisco, New York, right, a few times. And he's like, yeah, every time I go, it's it's full. Um, so, it's it's just – it's interesting to me, like, that, that many people are still, tr- you know, I guess commuting between the two. Um, but, I mean, I guess it makes sense, too, just in the size of the cities and stuff. But, yeah, crazy. Um eVTOL. I, I thought this was going to be like one of those like one and done type stories, but apparently everybody's on board now with eVTOL, uh, American, Virgin Atlantic, and Avalon. Really? Avalon's a big leasing company. Um, so who is this one? This was a Vertical Aerospace, right? A British company, UK company mm-hmm. that announced like 500 to 
uh, Avalon, 250 potentially to American. I didn't get a number on the Virgin Atlantic order, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds potentially of their aircraft to be delivered starting, if things go right, I want to say mid-decade, 25, 24, 26, something in that range. Uh, Again, with the like, and last week, I didn't put in the notes, but while this was happening, Archer, who's the company United purchased or announced its quote-unquote deal with, um, had a big unveiling of a mock-up of one of its, not a test flight vehicle, but a working prototype or something like that. An aircraft that they expect will fly, but is not what will be certified, because that's a cool thing to do, apparently. Um, I guess if you put, oh, I think it's the boom process. If you put something in the air, uh, you get more funding. So, huh. Uh, huh. I mean, it's a ton of, pl- again, I, I use the term contract and deal and order very loosely in all of these uh, conversations, because I think can't remember who someone was quoted as saying the deal right now is that you know these companies basically get a sales meeting three years from now yeah. that's, that's what they're buying with this partnership and investment and everything else it's nowhere close to a full uh full-on real order right even with so, the boom thing united said we would not classify this as a firm order okay so that's what i was going to ask you next is like how would you compare this to united's boom uh, comparable, which is to say it's mostly for show. It's mostly, uh, I mean, and listen, there's some equity investment and whatnot, but like, ver, uh, American's position is a $25 million investment in the company. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take hundreds of millions, if not into the billions for these things to start producing in a certified manner. So, you know, good. And, you know, Avalon put some money in Honeywell, put some money in, which is big avionics and systems manufacturer. There's a couple other players doing that sort of stuff, but it's, and I'm sure some of them will fly eventually. I guess the two parts I have, the questions I have is, will obviously they won't all fly, but which ones will fly? And B, do I really need to care? Mm-hmm. Like, is this something that is going to affect my travel experience? Yeah. And that's that's the part that's really interesting and challenging for me. I mean, I could argue that me getting to Logan in one of these, like, you know, there's a bus station in town. In Dover, if one of came, if one of these came up and picked me up at the bus station in Dover and flew me the sixty miles back down to Logan, that seems actually a more valuable use for them than flying someone from West Hollywood across to LAX. Yeah, um, maybe I'm being selfish there, but it's, you know, it's the trade off of like, are you just stuck in traffic, or is it actually a challenging distance to go? <laughs> um, and even beyond that, like, I, I'm not so sure that just making you know they're essentially helicopters. Right. I mean, it's just yeah. they're just electric and they have a whole bunch of propellers instead of one or two. But what's the what's the point there? Are we just subsidizing like rich people getting to the airport easier or are we making travel to more far flung places more efficient? Right. If it had a 300 mile range and went 250 miles an hour, it could come, I could, you know, skip Boston altogether and fly straight to Newark or LaGuardia. Right. Like where do you do you start using these to replace and maybe it's not all VTOL. Maybe it's some, you know, regular. No, I mean, I see, space, I, I see what you're what you're getting at, right? Like, you, here you I have barely figured out. You have uh, you have airports that are kind of they're further away, right? Then that's comfortable, right? Like, you don't have something that's super close to you for you to yeah. get to Boston. And this could be a way for those types of commuters or travelers to get to their preferred airport. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, like even in the Midwest, right? Like where you know there's EAS Central Air Service to some of these airports that would much better be served with something like this where the people can be picked up exactly you know at their airport maybe they only have to go through pre-check and this thing drops them off outside security and then they go through pre-check at you know o'hare or something like that you know yeah yeah i mean more i just don't understand i guess if it's just 
an electric airport transfer as opposed to a helicopter or driving. Yeah. I don't really see the value to the aviation ecosystem or the economy or society. Mm-hmm. I think is really what I'm trying to say. It's like, cause that's literally like we could do that today. The, the reason we don't is because helicopters are loud and have a history of being somewhat dangerous and the FAA has rules about where you can land them. And like, but will this congest the airways, right? That's the one thing. If all these details get out there, do we start seeing congestion? Potentially. I, I don't know though, because like, like at Newark, do you see any issues when you're in Newark with helicopters? They typically have a very specific pattern that they fly to land. Um, and I would hope that's kind of how this system would work. Yeah, I mean, so one of the big challenges is integrating these into the airspace system. And how, you know, what, what are they going to be classified as? How do they integrate in? Um, the models being announced and talked about today all have pilots or space for a pilot on board. Um, so I think the American one is a single pilot. I think uh, United's might be also, which raises all sorts of questions around liability insurance and will corporate policies allow people to, you know, executives to fly, excuse me, fly on them. Uh, and things like that. But there's just, you know, at some point, there's also discussion of making them all uh, uncrewed, right? making them autonomous. Yeah, that's terrifying. But I would argue, like, all major airports, right, the number of choppers they see a day is probably most can count on two hands. Right? Yeah. It's not a regular occurrence. These would be a far more regular occurrence. Yeah. I, one of the interesting things I saw was not these guys, but um, – Embraer announced last week an order or a partnership, I think it's for Alice is what they call theirs, or Eve. I don't know, I think Eve. Alice is a traffic management. Um, but the Embraer-Eve partnership was with a Brazilian uh, group, not surprisingly for Embraer. Uh, and that was interesting to me mostly because um, Helisul is the name of the operator and Eve is the name of the product. Um, they want to use urban air mobility vehicles uh, to handle – uh, operations in Brazil where helicopter flights are very common or much more common, I should say. Uh, that's right. So the, the theory is that Helisul, which is, or Helisul, I don't know, H-E-L-I-S-U-L, pronounce that as you will in Brazilian, um, wants to, already has a decent air taxi infrastructure using helicopters and wants to switch over to these vehicles. They've got an order for up to 50. And again, put the put, put order in quotes there. Um, but it's, you know, proof of concept, figuring out how that they'll integrate with the operations and then define the services and figure out how to get them into service. Um, and the, you know, the picture basically looks like all the others in some sense. It's, you know, a cabin with a pilot and some people and a bunch of these and a bunch of propellers on it. But replacing helicopters one for one and using them in that same environment, I sort of understand. Claiming that it's suddenly going to revolutionize the travel world and like, right, we've heard stories like... Uh, housing projects in central Florida are like talking about putting in heliports for, but you know, whatever vertiports for these EV tolls. And I'm like, what are they going to go to? The, like, you're not going to take this to the shopping mall. I just yeah. don't see that happening. Oh. Certainly not within the next 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, it seems like a stretch, right? Like using these is like, I mean, this is something out of like 2041, some kind of you know futuristic novel. You see all these helicopters and EV tolls flying around next week. Well, I watched the Jetsons. I thought it was cool. Yeah. It was cool. It was cool. Uh, just some thumb stuff. Some things have come full circle and some things have not. Well, at least the roads will be empty. <laughs> You're hilarious. Uh, speaking of which, can we talk real quick? This is not tra- aviation related, but can we talk about the Ford Maverick? Like, have you guys seen this? This is no. the electronic, the uh, battery this powered is, 150? No, no. This is their hybrid. So, oh, the new small truck. Yeah. So they have yes. the Ford F-150, right? The Ford F-150, they have is uh, they have an the EV. Lightning. 
yeah, the Lightning, and that's going to be their true EV vehicle, and it's got some crazy numbers and stats around it. It looks looks crazy. When Biden did the drive around test in and was yeah. the best marketing Ford's ever had. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this Maverick, I think, is actually the more compelling vehicle because it gets the same uh, miles per gallon as a Prius for 20, I think it's like $22,000. 20,000 base. 20,000 base. base. Um, and it's, I mean, it's getting 50, 50 miles per gallon. Yeah, 40 to 50 miles per gallon with a smaller engine. You can upgrade to the larger engine for increased tow capacity, but it already comes, it still has like 1200 pound tow capacity and 800 pound yeah. bed capacity in the stock model. So like if you're using this as like your like uh, your utility truck that you kind of, you know, take around your work uh, trailer or mm-hmm. something like this is a great round town vehicle. It's, it's for me to make trips to the lumberyard or that. Exactly. Like, My only complaint about it is it's a four foot bed because it's a crew cab. Oh, so it's less storage in the back of the bed. It's a relatively short bed. It's six and a half feet when they put the tailgate down. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're buying longer pieces of lumber. Um, a little harder. Yeah. Or you, know, you can't fit a sheet of plywood in the back. Right? Or it hangs out. Um, but it's got tie-down hooks and whatnot. So that's my only complaint about it. And it'd be nice if there was a you know a regular model without the four-door. Yeah. A two-door model. Um, but yeah, I, uh, my wife shared it with me the other day. We were, cause we were talking about the likelihood of me... Um, Going back to my North Florida country roots and buying a truck, pickup truck and how all of them were too big. And one, of, one of the problems with some of these, you know, particularly the Ford trucks, right? They're putting these turbocharged engines in, but the turbocharged engines don't have nearly as long a longevity of the traditional uh, truck engines. True. Well, and that's so, not going to be a problem with this guy. Why? It's, got the, it's, well, it's got a turbocharged engine, though. Is it turbocharged? Yeah, the EcoBoost is the fancy yeah. name for turbo on in Ford, and that's the that's one of the things that people don't realize. Like this hypersensitive, like hyper move towards turbo turbocharging everything, the overall life of the engines goes down. So you're actually over the course of the history of a vehicle, particularly like a truck, right, which you expect to last for a fair number of years, you're actually going to do more damage than buying a traditional vehicle. But isn't that? I mean, I mean, I don't disagree with you completely, Foz. But like, isn't that? The turbo, like you're seeing more turbocharged engines across the board, not just with Ford. Like, I mean, Volvo's engines are all turbocharged or supercharged in some cases. Absolutely. The problem is turbochargers put the engine through a lot more heat cycles. Yeah. The heat's much more extreme. The engines tend to break down much more often. Like, at this point, it's not uncommon to see a BMW get totaled within 10 years. Because because the turbochargers just adding so much heat to the Because there's so much heat and so many of these engines are more and more plastic than anything else. I, I get that. I, I think that what's compelling to me about the truck, right, is in like in, in uh, Seth's case, or even in my case or something, like if you need like a truck to get around town, I don't want something that's got a V8 or even maybe even a V6 where I'm burning, you know, I'm only getting 18 to 20 miles per gallon. I don't want town. something where I can't see people in front of me and I might accidentally run them over. <laughs> even get the little Ford Ranger. If I run comp- someone over, I want it to be on purpose, damn it. <laughs> the, problem is, the problem is even the compact trucks are like that, right? What we call compact now is what used to be a full-size truck 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah, like if you go look at the size of an old Tundra, an old t- Toyota Tundra. It's the size you, of the current Tacoma. Yeah, exactly. It's it's insane. Um, so see so what Seth needs is a Subaru Brat or an El Camino. <laughs> You know, I, saw Camino, I saw an El Camino drive by the other day, and I was like, you know, this is not a bad idea. I mean, they were they had the, they had the right idea back then. They're like, okay, people want a car, but they also kind of want a truck. You need the brat with the seats that face backwards, though. <laughs> oh. that deviation because a, a fun digression, but clearly, or at least travel, right? I think I actually think trains is next. Uh, yeah, so uh, well, we got we got one other we, oh, we got no, we got Air Transat is getting rid of their hotels, all of them, some of them, all of them. That's so, right, this is a holiday travel package company very much focused on tourist packages. And there was a history of keeping 
their own hotels so they could fly people in and then you know hit them with the room rate too um, and have somewhere for those passengers to go. And they had decided as part of the, the Air Canada merger fell apart because of European regulators and they haven't flown um, for several months because of COVID and Canada keeping its border closed. And they decided as part of the recapitalization and figure out what's next, they're going to divest the hotels. So they're selling them off. They, they cited cash flow problems. I'm sure they you know had mortgages that they couldn't pay on the land, basically. Wow. So, I mean, do they recover from this at all? I mean, this is not like gonna, it's not like they're going to buy the hotels back. When this is so the argument would be like they don't need to own the hotels. There's, the hotels are still going to exist. They can still have partnerships with whoever runs them and still send, you know, hundreds of people into Cuba or Mexico or wherever in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where the hotels were, uh, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're redoubling their efforts. They're actually sort of redoubling their efforts to operate as a network airline rather than just random point-to-point stuff. So they're going to try to do some feeders, I think. It's going to be interesting to see how it comes together. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, focus on Eastern Canada and their Quebec routes. Um, that was also a big part of, like, the whole merger thing was how much can they keep jobs and operations in uh, the province because that's where they're based. And yeah. A lot of political stuff around that. So, um, but refocusing on that for the competition. Hmm. Um, kind of another tangent since you brought up Canada, uh, the, G- the G7's meeting, and I'm sure by the time this airs, right, the, the G7 will be over. There's rumors that Biden is meeting with Trudeau to talk about opening the Canadian border back up completely. Uh, anyone want to give an over under on what they think the odds of that happening are? 2024. <laughs> I'll take the under. <laughs> on on Foz's bet? Foz set the line. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Foz is wrong. <laughs> At least I hope you. Yeah, even um, by Price's right rules, Foz's guess is is, is a um, <laughs> terribly pessimistic uh, one. I, I'm hoping I'm hoping we, we see it in the next couple of months. Like things have kind of sped up as far as uh, vaccinations in Canada, so um, maybe in the next month or two we'll see that the border open in both ways. I think the challenge, right, for Canada opening their border is. If, if the United States does it, if the United States says everyone can come over with no testing if they prove they're vaccinated, Canada still has heavy-duty testing rules in place for people and quarantine rules so that their own citizens, they basically be stuck at the border. So the uh, quarantine rules are finally getting relaxed a little bit. Yeah. I think there are either rumored or confirmed, and I, you know, it's in stage, stages now, but uh, that the, uh, the mandatory hotel quarantine has gone away, at least for vaccinated travelers. So that that's good news. I think it might only still be for Canadian citizens, though. Um, yeah, I think it's for anyone on, from the outside. I think still has to do the the uh, quarantine. That's yeah. my understanding. But not uh, is it still hotel quarantine even vaccinated? Yes. It? Okay. So, it, but it's it's getting better, right? All of this stuff. It's hard to say because like it, it will slowly and incrementally get better unless you're in the UK and you decide after making it better for two weeks that uh, that was a terrible idea for yeah, some kind of reason. Portugal again? Yeah, we we talked about this in last week's show. Yes, I thought I thought it came back and then it went back again. I, it's like, no, no, no. It was just okay. People are still pissed. Um, okay, that's, that's why I'm seeing all these rants on Twitter. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, next up, uh, Spirit at Miami and American at uh, Austin. New 30, 30 new destinations, 30 flights a day. Between those International two and domestic for Spirit at Miami. Holy crap. Starting in October, November. Subject to government approval, Astro. Um, wow. For some of the international rounds. Uh, it's a big play. Most of them are one, one, uh, one flight daily. Uh, I think all the domestic routes that I saw, I think, are daily service. So nothing, you know, Spirit was known for sort of sub, sub-daily frequencies. Some of the international stuff is three or four times a week. Hmm. And LaGuardia is double daily, but they are going after the market. Like 
They want it to be a real operation. Uh, and what's amazing, I mean, and their comment was, this isn't taking away from our Fort Lauderdale operation. We're going to be over 100 daily flights at Fort Lauderdale as well. We are just, you know, so popular here in South Florida, we had to expand. And, oh, by the way, also, you know, keeping this part of, you know, the uh, Miami International Airport has changed the way it charges airlines and low-cost carriers. So it's actually affordable for us to fly from them now. So that's a big part of it is like, you know, the per the uh, passenger, per passenger costs of employment are, way, are down significantly from what they yeah. used to be. But it's uh, it's a huge play. And right, I mean, JetBlue went in there. Uh, Southwest went in there. But this is way bigger than either of those. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what, what's interesting, I mean, the, Amer- the, the other half of the story that I put in the, the notes there was American added another 14 cities from Austin. Um, and in both cases, you're looking at... Miami is a little closer to Fort Lauderdale than Austin is to DFW, but you're looking at basically almost pseudo hub level operations, or if not at least focus city operations, to by the size of the airline. And it's relative, right? American's much bigger airline, so it takes more to become a focus city or hub. But American and partners are going to have 100 daily departures from Austin this winter. Like compared to 900 from DFW, that's small, but it's still enough that they're selling connecting routings, right? You guys yeah. talked about this with United selling weird out of the way connections, but like. I want to say Dulles to Las Vegas or Tampa to Las Vegas. One of those I found American just sells Austin as a connection point, like single through fare. It's nothing, nothing wonky, nothing, no end on end or anything like that. It's just a normal ticket. It almost feels like the mid two thousands. Like Austin <laughs> was a hub for American. So <laughs> well, I guess that, you know, that raises an interesting question. I mean, clearly Delta's ramped up a lot in Austin as has American. Why not United? You got Houston right there, man. It's only a two hour drive. Come on. It's just as far as DFW. Uh, DFW is far, but yes, I not by it. much. You have to deal with I-35. That's That right there is most of the reason people don't drive to Oh, Dallas. and 290 and 610 are that much fun? 290, you've got I-10, you got Wayne you, you got a bunch. Numbers. Highways, highways, <laughs> you know. It's not the turnpike, I know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, but. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because, I th- well, Foz, I think to answer your question, I don't think United, I mean, they have San Francisco and they have Denver, and they fly, all, I mean, they fly to all the hubs. I don't think they want to do any kind of point-to-point stuff. I mean, they were there for a while, right? They were flying like the summer spring break crowd to Cancun and like some places on the East Coast. But they're doing all these re- routes for the summer out of these weird places. So, right? Is that, but is, right, that, is that the question though? Is is United doing opportunistic seasonal flying where it sees demand surges that it knows it or knows is relative knows it can pick up or thinks it can pick up as opposed to these guys that are trying to are these you know as american at dallas is spirit at fort lauderdale at miami are these structural changes to their operations but i would argue right united has has a pretty substantial customer base in austin yeah absolutely uh, a club right but but as did american but yeah. when when the you know when it was really split between united and american because you know everything was a you know 45 minute flight to and somewhere else um now with american coming in does united actually ramp up or do they cede that business to delta and american because those folks are at some point going to go why am i always connecting when i've got two other carriers i can take nonstop to a lot of these places do you, i mean where does delta where's delta flying right now nonstop but besides their hubs I had to have to go back and look, but I mean, they're, they're, you know, they built that big lounge and I thought they had a year or two ago, they launched a really large expansion there. They did. Yeah. I mean, I know that the lounge, I mean, it's huge and their gate area is actually probably the nicest in the airport. Um, just cause it's in the new sex, new section of the, of the, of the place. So I, I just, I don't know unless they have a ton of options. I, you still have Houston 30 to 45 minutes away and you can get everywhere right at Houston. Well, almost everywhere. Yeah, Not the Caribbean. You guys 
I think Delta scaled back a little. Um, yeah, I think I think you're, from what I see right now, it's uh, they're flying Atlanta, to their Boston, hubs. Cincinnati, Detroit, JFK, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Raleigh, Seattle, and Salt Lake. So hubs and focus cities. There's no other pointer, pointer stuff. Yeah, I mean, and that's I, I, filed I, schedule, whatever. Who the hell knows? I don't think United is going to give up the traffic of us. You almost said Continental. Yeah, I know. I know. That's <laughs> I just was imagining the old days. Uh, I don't think they're going to cede that traffic to, to Delta or, or American. I think they're going to say, well, we'll up frequencies. We'll do something. Maybe we'll add some point to point flying. I just, I don't see them giving up the, the number of loyalists in, is loyalist a positive term in that sense? Um, to, to those other airlines. I just, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I would agree with you, but these are airlines. Logic rarely applies. True. Um, Amtrak Rail Pass. Now we're talking trains. What do you got, Seth? Uh, summer uh, promotion on their Rail Pass product. You can buy a 10 trip, which is sort of not everywhere, but 10 tickets. Um, and it's if you can buy it as a point-to-point single thing, it counts as a one. So, uh, But there's a... It's for only 300 bucks. The big caveat is it's valid. You have to buy it by, I want to say, the end of June or even maybe within the next week. You have to buy it relatively soon. And then once you buy it, you have 120 days to use it. And you're, once you start using it, it's only valid for 30 days. Hmm. So that's the sort of deal breaker for me is like you got to basically like plan a crazy month of riding the rails. But I want to say like New York to L.A. is a single ticket or, or maybe two. Um, oh, and it's coach only, so you, don't, you can't get a sleeper, or a business class upgrade, or a Sella. Well, I hate to tell you this, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to go across the country and Amtrak coach. No, not your not your game. <laughs> no, uh. I'm with Stephen on this one. <laughs> um, I, I just thought it was, it was cool, just in terms of the both being a deal and like all you can rail. Is it is it a is it a good deal? Like if you're on the East Coast, oh, so it can't be used on Excella though. So you can't use it on Excella, and there's a rule like you can't you can't use it for like the same round trip city pair over and over again. But like if you wanted to go up and down the East Coast and not in Excella class or on that on one of the Excella services, you could technically go from Baltimore to New York or Baltimore to to Boston and use this. I could see that being useful. Well, you can't like do five round trips. Because, no, um, but you can, and they, they actually have some interesting wording to try to protect the people from gaming it about talking about you can't use it for intermediate stops even uh, on those to like pretend that you're going the full distance but not um, no no hidden city ticketing basically um <laughs> but it. like you know you can use it on the long haul routes too that's what where the theoretical value comes in although i don't know if you could actually get 10 long haul routes transit given how slow the trains are i i would i would like to see you try not that's the no, come on! That'd be fun to be think it, about the I, content. I know, but I'm I got other com- I got other commitments this summer. I have this vision of Seth getting off a train in Barstow, California, and going, "Now what?" <laughs> all, all like hairy, like half grown out yeah. beard. <laughs> Stum- stumble into that McDonald's that's in the rail car out there and be like, yeah. "Why is everyone charging a Tesla?" I'm so confused. <laughs> what year is it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Where uh, am I? Stobar and Antwerp liquidation. So these are two airlines. Oh, that's a typo. Stobart. Sorry. Stobart. Uh, two airlines in Europe uh, yep. that are liquidating, which is sad. Very much. Air Antwerp was the second or third iteration of the airline trying to fly between Antwerp and London City. Um, I flew them last last January, I want to say, on the Europe weekend trip that you guys both didn't show up for. Um, I thought Flash showed up. Uh, he made it to London, but didn't get any further than that. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's right. All right, we got to fix this now. Post- Anyways, um, <laughs> I, I, I flew into London, then flew down to Antwerp on them, and then took the train over to what's the where the train where the cool monorail thing was. Um, anyway, Wuppertal. Wuppertal, yeah. So, um, but I got to fly them the once. They flew a little Fokker um, prop back and forth, and they actually had applied for their slots at London City again this coming year. This coming winter season, and announced on Friday that they were out of business last Friday afternoon. Um, and then similarly, who's um, Stobart is Aer Lingus regional, so they fly props for Aer Lingus. They also fly some white leases for British Airways City Flyer, similar. Uh, I think actually out of City Airport, uh, and they had some KLM maybe at one point. I'm not sure if those were still active or still under contract, but. They had a deal in theory for a new investor to show up, but that was contingent on financing and that investor couldn't secure the financing from a different thing. And then, you know, it just all fell apart very quickly. But they officially closed up shop, uh, I want to say Saturday morning and it's not good. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it's. Stobart was big. Like, yeah, I mean, because they offered stuff, uh, flights between Belfast and Birmingham. East yeah, and they did a lot of the Exeter. Belfast yeah. City Airport. Yeah. Not the international stuff. So it was like, you know, commuter props, but all over the, the British Isles. It sounds like some of the bigger ones at Belfast City will be will be operated by mainline Aer Lingus. So uh, Birmingham, Edinburgh, and Manchester. Yeah, Aer Lingus backfilled for now. Well, it's sort of a, like I said, scrambled the jets. Uh, yeah. But they're trying to backfill and figure it out. And I think the Air Antwerp stuff is done. Obviously, that's just not happening anymore. Um, that route's dead. But that's what happens when you you know have to not basically not fly for eighteen months, sixteen months. Things it's rare that things survive that without yeah. government support. And the government support on that side of the pond has been less than stellar. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to save our last topic for a bonus show. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Cutter and St. Martin. So uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, stick around for that. Uh, if not, you can support us on Patreon and, and get access to this bonus content. Um, yeah, but you can follow us on Twitter at dots lines, more dots, more lines dot com. Leave a comment, ask a question, rant at us. We may read those. Who knows? I love uh, the rants. Yes, the rants are the best. Um, so yeah, until next time, uh, happy travels. Bye bye. Take care. See you later. <laughs>